You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Christopher Nguyen, who is the CEO and co-founder of Atomonic. Think atomic, but with AI. He's a professor, builder, founder with successful exits, leader, knowledge-first ML creator. He's a strategic executive leader, Google Panasonic CEO, CTO, VP of engineering with successful corp experiences quantitative finance, applied statistics, and more. On today's show, we talk about what is it like to successfully start and exit several companies? What is a knowledge-first app engine? How do you train a cybersecurity system against something that has not yet happened? What is open-source project human-first AI? And what are some of the top strategic technology trends that you're seeing for 2023 and 2024? This and much more on this week's episode of Silicon Valley Podcast. All right, now let's start this week's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Christopher, I'm super excited for today's episode. So first off, I just want to thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. And for our audience, can you give us a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Wow, that's going to be a long answer. <laughs> I, I grew up here, you know, maybe that's an interesting factoid. One of the people that uh, in, in walking around Silicon Valley that grew up here since the beginning of the PC revolution, middle school here, high school. Of course, I came as a as a child refugee. You know, lived in San Jose, did my undergrad at Berkeley, PhD at Stanford, and then basically became a professor because that's what I thought I wanted to become. Soon, I discovered I was a, really an entrepreneur, and so went through a career of building companies. Came, you know, went went to Asia to do that. Came back to the U.S. I joined Google, then and then left that and and built another company. That company was acquired by Panasonic. And took a lot of what we learned from that experience and, and, and launched this new company called Itomatic. Wait, wait, let's go back because there was a lot there. <laughs> I mean, we did say give a brief intro, but that was... So one thing, a lot of the people that we've had on the show in the past and that we've talked to that go the academic route to get a PhD, normally the entrepreneur spirit's not in them. They're more cautious, they're more analytical, more... Now, let's just keep learning, learning, learning without the action part that the entrepreneur has. How did you pivot or switch from the PhD to, okay, I'm going to go out and work with these startups? Well, well, the decision was very, very difficult. I remember sitting, this is uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. I remember sitting at the top of a hill there looking over the calm ocean, trying to make that decision you know, of, of that change. But, you know, now 30, 35 years later, looking back, I think uh, I, I can safely say that I thought I wanted to become a professor, but entrepreneurship, company building was really in me. And the reason that I, th- I thought I wanted to become a professor is because all of my father figures up to that point, you know, I can name in my life in high school was Mr. McKell, in, in undergrad, it was Professor Pinko, graduate school was Professor Simon Wong, and even as a professor, it was Professor Casey Smith. All of my father figures were professors, were teachers. And so that's, that's what I thought I wanted to become. But when I actually did it and the internet was just happening, you know, 95 Netscape was launched and I was sitting there saying, hey, wait a minute, I, I worked on all this stuff and I know this 
much better than some of the people that are building these companies. So I, 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 I should uh, give my hand at it. So I left. When you're saying that you knew this stuff better than the people building these companies, what exactly do you mean by that? Because building a company, there's such a diverse kind of knowledge set that's needed versus academic, which is I'm a expert in this one, one niche down thing. You're, that's a great question. Uh, so I was repeating the thoughts of a very naive 26, 27-year-old professor thinking that technology was the only thing that counted. And so what I thought I knew this stuff, because I had worked on, you know, on, on, on BSD systems, on Linux, uh, on, sorry, Unix kernels at the time and so on. So I was developing some of these protocols that people were, were now commercializing. So I thought maybe I should do that. And so that's actually an excellent segue to my, my actual learning of the world, you know, as it is. And, and so I, in the last 30 years, I learned, of course, it takes a lot more than just technology expertise to build a company. Okay. So that pivot, you're 26. I'm guessing you said right there, you're looking over the, the calm water. The moment you dove into the entrepreneur ecosystem, I'm sure everyone that you knew thought you were crazy. Yep. How'd you end up? You mentioned Google. How'd you pick that? Because, I mean, there's chance and then there's, was it strategic thinking that you ended up there or was it just roll the dice and, hey, this company looks okay? So Google was a number of years later. You know, when I left, there was 13 years total in between that I was in Asia, being a professor for four years, building companies and selling them. Google was when I, I thought I, you know, after I sold a couple of companies, came back to the U.S. because my family is all here in the, in the Bay Area. You know, my mom was getting older, so I moved back, thought I was going to just retire. And then some friends at this company called Google said, hey, Christopher, you know, you know enterprise. We don't know enterprise. We know consumer. And we've got this thing. You know, why don't you come help us figure it out? And, and that turned out to be, you know, eventually we launched this Google Apps. I like how you were mentioning, yeah, I was getting older. I was thinking about retiring. But if you do the math... <laughs> <laughs> what are you the the bottom one third of your lifespan there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so you mentioned you sold a couple companies. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about you know, that building flipping companies and that mindset? Because another thing that comes up is I want to build a company and take it public, not I want to take a company, build a company and do a quick sale. Well, when I build my first or even my second company, I didn't think about. You know, Silicon Valley, we've, we've made a science out of these things. I was just a kid, right? <laughs> Excited about doing certain things. And, you know, like if I can see two, three years out, that'd be great. And so back, this is back in the, in the mid nineties, again, the, the time of Netscape, Mark Andreessen and, and others. In fact, the first company that I built to work with, with Mark, right? We did software distribution for Netscape. And then that became eventually Sun, Sun Microsystems and as well as AOL. But we were just really interested in just being part of this and, and building it and then just good things would happen. And of course, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, uh, toward the late nineties, particularly in the, in Silicon Valley in the U.S., you know, there's a phrase that says, let's party like it's 1999. <laughs> but what people didn't know was in 1997, the Asian financial crisis happened. It was triggered by the floating of the bot. Right. The, the currency was, was being attacked and it was a, what's called a contagion throughout Asia. And I was just in the middle of building my company. That, that's when I, I learned about currency shocks and I learned about geopolitics and, and, and so on. 
right? So any thought about selling the company or going IPO, basically, no, just put your head down and, and build. Well, that's interesting. And, and before going on, I mean, right now, currency is coming up quite a bit in the news, whether it's the pound being devalued, whether it's the ruble, whether it's, it's discussed quite a bit, but from a position where I think most people listening to it have no idea how it's going to really affect them possibly moving forward. From experiencing currency, inflation, change of that, how, what knowledge can you pass on to companies here, entrepreneurs here, of how to maybe build a company or weather a storm in times of currency, currency crisis? I'll tell a little bit of story about how we did it. It may be unique and not quite applicable, but I, then I'll try to f- extract some learnings from that. The company that was that was the system integration distribution software distribution company that we built, and that was we cover Southeast Asia. In the first couple of years, very successful, right? People actually had to pay for browsers, <laughs> so we sold browsers quite successfully. Netscape browsers and. Microsoft uh, couldn't make any headway, and so Microsoft eventually sort of gave the browser away. And and then Netscape had to basically, you know, uh, Jim Clark or Jim Barksdale would say, we got to be changing our shoes while running, right? Meaning it pivoted to, to servers. So I, so I saw pivoting from from a from a large U.S. company, uh, and then the Asian financial crisis happened. Um, throughout all of these shocks, and and it turns out I've built this would be the fourth or fifth company that I built. The details may be different, but the movie is pretty much the same. You're going to go through some shocks. Some get so lucky that they build something and then a year later flip it for a billion dollars. And maybe that's not so lucky. But but most of us building companies are going to some kind of crisis. Are going to go? That's going to happen. What I learned through that experience, you know, what we decided to do is actually to expand. Right? Really? Right. But it was actually expand or die. Right, because our our territory at the time was focused mostly in Singapore and Malaysia, and these were the two economies most affected by the financial crisis. But it turned out the ones that are more connected with the U.S. economy were doing much better because U.S. economy this is coming to Y two K. You know, there's still a lot of investments made, so we expanded to places like Taiwan. Right, so in in our case, expansion actually helped. Right, we won our first two million dollar deal. You know, if you go to UDN.com, UDN stands for United Daily News. Now, I'm sure a lot of people probably visit Taiwan uh, news sites and so on. The, the logo, the website that was built by us. Uh, but, but making that expansionary move actually saved us. And then we, we regrouped and then we, we grew back out uh, years later, years after, out of Taiwan and expanded to Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing, and so on and, and then that company was eventually sold to WPP. Okay, for well, each of these companies, wondering, were you a, a solo founder or were you partnering with someone while building these? Almost never. In the first company, I was the, the second co-founder, buddy of mine from Berkeley. His name is Steve Shaw. He didn't. He knew what he wanted. He didn't go the the PhD route. He went to work at Informix. And Informix, uh, some people may know as a, one of the pioneer database companies, uh, at one point was dominant over Oracle, for example. But Steve was sent to, to Singapore to open up their office there. A few years later, he left and, and started uh, this company, and he needed a, a, a really strong tech guy, somebody who knew internet technologies and so on. I was his professor in Hong Kong at the time. 
And then Steve came up and said, hey, Christopher, there's this thing happening. And of course, I had my own perspective about it too. I said, oh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And then for there, you were the, the CTO. The others, you were the, the founder. Just wondering on, on these, when you were, were found in the company, did you, going back to Silicon Valley, first thing everyone thinks of is how can I raise capital? Were these bootstrapped or did you have outside investors? How'd you build those relationships if you did? Yeah. So for better or for worse, the first company I built, we learned how to bootstrap. We started out with basically $50,000. If you look at different company models, there are those that are pretty much very driven, very cash flow driven. A distribution company is essentially a trading company. You take something on the left hand, you hand it to your right hand and say you mark it up by 30%. And so it's a very cash flow driven company. And so it's a, it doesn't need a lot of ups, upfront capital. On the other hand, it doesn't scale in terms of saying, okay, I'm going to invest one or two years of R&D, and then based on that, I'm going to sell you know, a lot more. So the other model is to spend some time investing in, in things that people aren't necessarily paying directly for, and then selling it as software later. And so we learn how to bootstrap that model, and then we shift to the software model and so on. So a lot of it, I remember that in bookstores, there used to be this this fast forward X. So I, I would buy the fast forward MBA. <laughs> so I taught myself, you know, PL, cash flows and everything, you know, as a as a reasonably smart guy with a lot of tech background. But all of that was acquired on the streets. Okay, then then question there. For our engineers listening, and that is a pretty good percentage of our, our audience, what skills should they add to their reservoir of knowledge when they start a company. I mean, right there, PNL's cash flow. Tell us more financials or, or where should they focus on learning a little bit or where should they focus on partnering or hiring or bringing on someone that has these skills? I mean, what's the bare minimum they should know about different areas? Yeah, well, we're sitting in Silicon Valley and, and the true conventional wisdom is that the advantage of being in Silicon Valley is that the system, the ecosystem is very supportive of supplying the missing pieces. If you try to start a company in Kuala Lumpur, you got to figure it all out and do it all yourself, right? On the other hand, the competition is proportionally less as well. But uh, you know, now many years later, now having run companies, both startups as well as a big, big global corporate executive, I, I firmly believe that you know some of the things I mentioned, P&L, cash flow, balance sheets, and so on, should, should be part of the the mental model of anybody running a company. It's kind of like understanding a system that, that you're operating, just like understanding the operating system of the of computer system. But, but be very aggressive. You, know, you asked earlier about are these solo founding you know, experiences. Or I always actually try to find someone to work with me. And a lot of it is psychology. When I'm low, that person could be high. And, and when they're, they're, they're low, that could be the high. Because depending on your, your um, you know, why you do it, the, the highs can be very highs and the lows can be very low, right? And, and I think having someone to basically bounce off when I'm very upset, that person could calm me down and, and vice versa. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that you could not possibly do for yourself. Everything else you can try to acquire, you can try to hire. But I think having a trusted person or even a trusted circle, that, that helps a lot. That, that helps uh, durability. And now that I've learned, you know, building these companies, always aim to be in it for the long term. 
Well, long term, that could be relative. Some people might think long term is a year or two. What's long term in your I, mind? I, I don't think a year or two is long term at all. Long, long term could be sort of minimum five, could be 10. A, again, you know, the, the vast majority who, who find, I would say, satisfaction, not, not just financial return, but find meaning in doing this uh, are in it for the long term. That's interesting a lot what you said there. We've had past guests, Sam Wong, Chucky Orbita, talk about mental wellness founders, talking about the, the highs and the lows. And it's very interesting that you'd mentioned the reason for maybe having a co-founder is for that mental wellness aspect of it. That's uh, exactly right. Now, I mean, we've talked a lot about your career and what you've done, but you're an artificial intelligence expert, and that's really what excited me to have you on the show to dive into that because that's such a buzzword everywhere in the Valley. And well, any company, it seems that comes in here, flies to Silicon Valley, one of the first things they say is we're an AI company, or then they throw in blockchain or something. You know, there's a bunch of buzzwords, but just sticking on artificial intelligence for audience out there that may not be too familiar, what's the minimum they should know about artificial intelligence and what's happening with that? sector currently in the world? I would say it's generally known or generally accepted that to say that I'm an AI company will become like I'm a database company or I'm a company that uses a database. Every company, it didn't used to be that everybody had a database, right? That's actually a, a relatively recent concept in, in the span of history. But today, you know, you don't say I have a database. By definition, you do. So same thing with, with AI, right? It's, it's a technology, it's enabling technology. To the extent that people want to have it demystified, I think AI is just computers recognizing patterns. The difference between computers recognizing patterns and computers listening to the exact instructions that we give them is the difference between machine learning and, and the other styles of programming, the other style of software, if you will. Uh, computers are very dumb, right? They do exactly what we tell them to do because they, their processing capabilities are limited. So the first wave of using computers is just say, just do the following thing exactly as I say. All the intelligence is outside of that program. It comes from the human brain. And then the current approach, machine learning, is about, well, I'm going to give you some basic learning algorithms, but not the actual algorithm to do the job. And then together, I'm going to give you a bunch of examples of past classifications or, 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 or decisions and so on. And then based on these hundreds of thousands of examples, can you, the computer, that algorithm, figure out the pattern and then sort of mimic those decisions for me, right? Discover the pattern. So AI is really just, at this point anyway, uh, is all about that. Okay, now what about, going on your website, I looked at knowledge first app engine. Okay, what's that? Right. So, so then if you talk about automatic, we do something even more specific. So AI in general, you can think of it, you know, let's say, let's, let's say machine learning or any intelligent system. Being part of Panasonic in the past four years, you know, my, my previous companies was acquired and, and I helped run global AI for this industrial giant. Turns out to be my first experience ever, looking back, my first experience ever really dealing with physical real-world physical systems. And then I discovered that everything that we did at Google, all the digital system, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, and so on, is easier. Easier AI, if you will. Simpler AI. So the question is, what is it about these physical systems that make it so much more challenging to apply AI to it? But our company is about 
developing tools and techniques to help these industrial companies implement you know intelligent systems ai systems because it is a 25 trillion dollar economy so these industries why is it so difficult is it because of lack of data and if it is what's the minimum amount of data they would need to really start optimizing artificial intelligence in their in their processes it is in fact lack of data but lack of data in a very particular way, because generally, anytime you approach machine learning, people say, well, we don't have enough data, let's go collect more. But in the digital space, it's much easier to collect more data. Right? At Google, when I wanted to have more consumer behavior information, I just write 10 lines of code, launch it as what we call a percentage experiment, and then by evening, I've got a, a billion clicks to the way through. In a physical system, in live critical systems, you cannot say, hey, let's have a million human accidents. <laughs> and then we'll try to figure out, or, or let's have a, a thousand examples of you know, engines, plane engines fail, and then we'll try to predict it in the future. Wait, so, so, so go back. How would you write 10 lines? I mean, I know that's, but then have maybe a thousand simulations of airplane engines failing that you could then kind of analyze to, to change things. I'm just... Maybe it's just me, but I'm not seeing how a computer can come up with so many different ways for engines to fail that are, are realistic scenarios. So you're right. It, it is not possible. Or it's, it's not, certainly not easy to do. You can try to simulate it, but real life is very complicated. Physical systems are not as predictable as we would like them to be. And in any case, it'll take much too long. And your competitors already gone, gone, you know, gone to market with it. So we have to develop tools and techniques for AI that rely on very few examples. We're, ta- we're not talking about thousands, we're talking about dozens right, of examples. How do you do machine learning with that? It turns out the key insight hit us when we deploy some of these systems and then we find that there were human experts downstream handling the workflow. If you, we see some anomaly detection system, a human expert would look at the anomaly and then say, well, that's okay. Or based on looking at the pressure and the temperature, I can see that in about a week, the compressor will fail. And so that's when the light bulb went up. We said, okay, what we need to do is not work so much with these, or count so much on these failure example, but to do after, you know, we've detected a potential failure or potential anomaly, and then to codify the human knowledge. So domain expertise is, is the key insight to, to our brand of AI. So, because I'm thinking right now, that could be very interesting for acquiring a company where it's that company, they've been around 40 years. You have all these machinists doing the same thing for 40 years. And I mean, if you were to look at their expertise, maybe this somehow becomes a tech company because of the data experience you could pull from these employees that have been there for 40 years. Is that just way out there? Is that a possibility? That's, that's a very refreshing point of view particularly in the U.S., right? On the one hand, you know that geopolitically, we're trying to bring manufacturing, not low-end manufacturing, but the next generation, let's call it building and making things. We've stopped building these physical systems for 30 years, and we're starting to realize that that's a strategic error and bringing that back. But as we bring that back, we find that the people with the knowledge, the tooling knowledge, the systems knowledge, these physical systems, you know, Maxwell's equations people, right? They're they're disappearing because, because in the last 
few decades, we've been telling our kids, you know, go into computer science. You're going to make a lot more money. So these people are becoming quite precious, you know, national treasures, if you will. In some situations, a large company, you know, serving the entire country, there's only four experts that you can consult. So, so we really need to urgently codify what they know and, and then extend it into our systems. How much of a premium do you think you could put on? I'm thinking a company with startups, you'll say, tell us if you have any patents or that. I mean, now it, it sounds like, tell us if you have any f- experts that have done it for 40 years mm-hmm. on your team. Like that could almost have the same value as a patent portfolio or that when it comes to a moat, yeah. a barrier of entry, when you take that knowledge and plug it into the AI algorithms that it sounds like you guys are developing, is this is that something that's in the realm of possibility to say? Yeah, well, I'll give you some examples about this this human capital. So this happened, this was a trend that's been building for, you know, at, at least half a decade. I have some friends because my PhD from Stanford was in semiconductor. This is many years ago. And of course, I've had a very varied career, but I have some friends that have worked at Intel for 30 years. We interviewed Ted Hoffman for this for this show, and we've interviewed a couple of the Intel alumni guys. Exactly. But here, here's the twist. So this this very stable, you know, 30-year Intel, we call him a, a process expert. So he has in his head, essentially, you, you, you helicopter him into a semiconductor facility and he'll make it work. About five years ago, he was poached by TSMC. And so this, this is a career Intel guy, right? And this is not a unique story. This is multiple people. Uh, you may know TSMC was doing so well, and they really need to expand and, and show on, right? Shinchu is sort of the epicenter of the semiconductor world. So a lot of those people with their expertise, and there are not that many of them, this muscle uh, memory is, is very precious. And so so they're, they're being poached, and you know they threw millions at him, right? Bought him a house in, in Taiwan, and he still maintains a house in, in, in Oregon and so on. And recently, he's back in Phoenix working on TSMC facility there. So yeah, this, this human capital is, is still very, very important and they are coming back. The need for them is coming back to the U.S. Do you think that before the pandemic, there was a lot of kind of intellectual recruitment from you know, mainland China that for, the, for academic, for professors and that here to set up research operations there? Do you think in the coming years... That could be more the, the U.S. companies recruiting overseas and bringing these experts back here to open up manufacturing. Do you think it's going to be reversed? Do you think there's going to be a heavy push to recruit the best of the best overseas later in their careers, not to come here for college, but later on to bring them back? Well, I, I think depending on where the, the geopolitics go, there is a, you may be aware, there's a sort of a bifurcation or, or, or a decoupling of the two economies. So there's going to be a duplication, what China is trying to build, what we're trying to build, and so on. And it has very real impact. I was just uh, visiting Hong Kong, which we were chatting earlier. We visited uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, HKUST. And some of these colleagues, former colleagues of mine, basically had to stop their work that are China or, or Chinese entity related. You know, in a matter of 24 hours. So, so all of that is, is still, the, the uncertainties around that is still, people are trying to sort that out. But I think if we can work this out in the long term, there's a benefit to this global flow of, of talent, of, of brain power, and so on. Okay, let's take it back. Let's go, let's move away from politics for yeah. now. And what about like cybersecurity, training those systems for when there's, a little information of potential future attacks or future bridges. How can 
your solutions or artificial intelligence help that sector? So that's one example of why data does not exist because the threat has not occurred, right? You're, you're trying to prevent something from happening. We have worked on uh, the cybersecurity system of vehicles, right? In the near future, already Tesla's, but in the near future, cars are really going to be computers on wheels. And the Canvas system, this is the, the you can think that a computer network uh, of, of cars were never built with security in mind. The car was just moving. Who would, you know, at, at the time anyway, who would attack it, right? You have to plug something in and run along with it. But it turns out cars are now being connected through the, you know, 4G network and, and, and Wi-Fi and all of that. So they're quite subject to, to cyber attacks and increasingly so. You know, any attack surface will increase simply the volume of, of cars that, uh, on the road that, that, are, uh, that are connected. So there was one project that we, we worked on. This is through a tier one supplier, meaning these are the direct suppliers into the automotive companies. And the idea is to simulate, to understand the, the, the normal network traffic that is on, on there's a hundred or so what's called ECUs that are talking to each other all the time, sending sensor signals, and then the attack would happen. ECUs? Yes. What does that mean for uh, our audience? Uh, electronic uh, co- computing units or something like that. These are the, the equivalent of CPUs. Uh, but they're, they're, they perform much more specific functions. Uh, for example, monitoring the fuel injection, monitoring speed and, and life support and so on. Attacks would happen in the form of, let's say, they would, you're, you're, you're driving at 40 miles an hour, but it's reporting 25. What would happen in, in that case? So the techniques that we use there is, again, using human expertise. Invite in what's called white hat hackers and say, how would you attack these systems? And then using that to essentially generate the data, the data patterns that consistent with some of those attacks and then, you know, adding some noise and, and, and so on. And then building machine learning systems to try to learn these things on the fly. Up to now, a lot of cybersecurity system is very much what we call signature-based. So you can, you can detect what you've already seen. Okay, the signature looks exactly like that virus or that attack. But building systems that will evolve with the attacks, that's the, that's the new challenge. And that's what we've worked on. So... Talk about even more what's happening in artificial intelligence that could affect the public in general. You mean for cyber attacks or just physical systems? Either or. I mean, you can go as broad or as narrow as you'd right. want. Well, uh, and that's, that's the co- cool thing. You know, our team loves to work on these, what we call the, the industrial domain, because they're all physical systems. Either they impact the environment or they put food on your table or they are life critical systems. They are more meaningful to work on in, in many cases than saying, you know, helping you make sure you're going to click on an ad. So some of the system we work on, fish finding, for example, for fishermen to determine what species of fish and how many are down below and be very targeted about catching fish as opposed to just dragging a net and destroying the ocean floor. There's another technique in Japan called fixed net fishing, which is instead of moving the net, across the ocean floor. Why don't you just keep the net in one place and have schools of fish float through? They go from A to B, and once they get to B, they can't go back to A, and so it's kind of a trapdoor system. And then using some of the systems that we help develop to, to try to tell the fishermen, okay, it's time to go and collect your mackerel. All of this is, requires the expertise, not even of the engineers building the system. The expertise comes from the fishermen that have used these systems, used these detectors, they can look at echograms and tell exactly what kind of fish are down there. 
And so we, we, try, we build systems that help to codify that knowledge. They would describe it, not in terms of a million examples of images, where they would say, well, if you see these bubbles or these circles here in, at the cat corner, I can tell that that's just air bubbles from, and so we sort of, that's not fish. And so we have systems that will codify what they just said into a machine learning system. With all this machine learning, artificial intelligence now being more and more prevalent in everyday life, how do you see kind of the work environment in the next three to five years or maybe even further? Do you see robots and software taking over most of our roles and us all living on universal income and just kind of relaxing? Or where do you see things? Well, what you describe is 20 years, or maybe 30. <laughs> I'll still be alive. That's good. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. retirement age. So that's, that's right. perfect timing. That's right. And then beyond that, we're plugged in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but certainly over the next five years, these are really exciting times for, for industrial AI. It sounds very boring. Oh my God. Software is much more sexy and much more exciting. But industrial, you know, we're still physical beings. We used to eat fish. You still need a way for that macro to get from the ocean fresh to your dining table. So industries like people may not have heard of, cold chain, for example, Panasonic is a, is a world leader in cold chain, the coal supply chain. I think as you know, we've, we've gone through, and, and people will realize this more after the fact, we've gone through the sort of the easy phase of AI applications. All the digital in, digital process, and digital out, these are the, the headlines that you see today are actually coming from the easy stuff. It makes sense, right? Uh, but we're about to hit the hard stuff. The stuff that feeds you, clothes you, and if we don't get right, you may get hit on the freeway or something. I think that's happening over the next five to 10 years. And when that happens, it'll be weaved into, into a physical fabric, you know, our modern life. If the economy goes into a, a huge crash, do you think this will be implemented even quicker because it will increase efficiencies and save money? Or do you think it would be delayed because people won't want to spend more on R&D funding? And that for the meantime. I, I see, of course, we're all very um, enthralled or obsessed about, you know, this persistent inflation and the recession and in fact, the hard landing that Chairman Powell is, is engineering. But I think another way to look at it is there's a readjustment, there's a shift in the economy. And you can actually see that in China already. And I predict we'll start to see it in the U.S., which is a shift from and again, it's interesting. I'm going to categorize it broadly as software to hardware or digital to physical. In China, there is, you know, you see the, their economy is not growing as fast. And there's all kinds of sad stories coming out of their Fosun balance sheet and everything is, is, is in tatters. But if you look at semiconductor, if you look at robotics, right, if you look at these industries, there's massive investments flowing in, in within the country. On the U.S. side, we've, we've got the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure and so on. That is actually approximately another trillion dollars that's going to be invested over the next few years. So, so you're going to see a renaissance of building. In, in the case of China, they've been doing that for forever, but it's going to be in the U.S. If you read some of the headlines that are maybe hidden, Panasonic just invested $4.5 in Kansas to build batteries. Up to this point, Panasonic's been building all the batteries for Tesla. I'm not sure if, if folks know that, but with that plan, Panasonic is going to build in America batteries for other automotive companies. And LG has announced another $4 billion investment there as well. 
So, you know, amidst all of this uh, gloom and doom, which is, <clears throat> yes, you know, in, in the near term, we're going to see a recession, that's for sure. We may already be in one. But, you know, as you have seen, every recession is opportunity for something new to grow. And my bet is on on the making of things. So going to the making of things, I am curious about you know, Panasonic creating all the batteries. I'm thinking right now, and the connectivity, what do you think of the switch to electric vehicles and how that will kind of stimulate the economy because of so many new technology things that could be evolve around it smart cities 5g all this for the connectivity of the cars the batteries that do you think there's going to be kind of a 2000 it was the dot com maybe 2025 the era of the electric vehicle or something like that i like that prediction <laughs> i would subscribe to it i think it's a good thing I'm, I'm not one of those blind techno optimists right i mean technology I've seen do very, very bad, very evil things as well. And I was part of some of that. <laughs> oh, let's share some stories. <laughs> well, you know, advertising and so on. And the impact, uh, you know, the, the social networks and so on. The, the excessive focus on engagement. Engagement was a beautiful word, but I think it should be thought of as a, as a dirty word these days. That's what, what all we optimize for. But electric vehicles, apart from the obvious economic boost that the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, let's say you buy EVs and of course that has to have something like 60% US content or, or, or something like that, then you get, you know, you get a, a tax rebate or tax credit. Apart from that very near-term economic boost, I think it's great for the environment. And then very soon we're going to have personal transport vehicles, right, for, for much more efficient transport. You know, we don't need, all need to get into a car just to drive a mile or, or two. Google, you know, down in San Jose, trying to build this Google village, the vision being how far can you go without any vehicles? Can you live, work, eat, play? Of course, some of these concepts, you know, we talked, you and I have quite a bit of experience in Asia, you know, these high density structures, right? Where we're trying to intuitively intuit our ways through it here as well, you know, near public transport. But I think, I think it's a, it's good for the world uh, to move in that direction. And with this development of new technology, I mean, your group is a little bit involved or, or maybe more in the open source project Human First AI. Can you talk about that? Right. So as we discover you know, this, this amazing problem, very effective, very valuable to solve, and we're building software around it, let's call it a translator. We want to translate, we're trying to translate human knowledge into these machine learning architectures that are human knowledge driven. We realize that that a lot of these target architectures are not unique to us. So we have our own ideas. We we have real world experience building, deploying some of these systems. But it turns out there are lots of people intuiting the same thing. I have a term I call industry intuitions. Like well before people make predictions about things, the industry is already getting market market signals, and they're doing various things. They don't realize what they're doing, but then sort of suddenly it comes together in in a year. So there's a lot of what, in, what I call industry intuitions around the need for domain expertise, around the need for building machine learning systems, AI systems that are inspired by or explicitly informed by human knowledge, by physical equations. So we open source you know, what we do and hope that we'll get other people to contribute their work. And in fact, that takes me to an upcoming symposium at Stanford called Knowledge First Symposium academics, leaders in government, in academia, in industry, 
coming together and sharing these stories of successes and failure of implementing these things. At least to say that we're not crazy. How come Google is so successful at doing this and we're struggling and we have just as smart people? It turns out the physical industry is working on much harder problems than Google is working on when it comes to implementing AI. With all these difficult problems that are being worked on, it sounds like the life of an AI engineer is only going to be rosy, only, only going to be positive in the years to come. Is there any concerns that an AI engineer should have? Yes. <laughs> or I should say there's an opportunity. I, I just had dinner with a friend who's a mechanical engineer. And I said, do you know that the demand for mechanical engineers, for physicists, for electrical engineers are on the rise, on the increase? So this is the opposite trend of the last 20 years where we say go into computer science. So I would say AI engineers, you better brush up on your physics. Interviews are going to have more, you know, tell me a little bit about Maxwell's equations. You know, what's a point charge? <laughs> what the kinds of things you need to have at least intuitions around to, to effectively help build these systems. You, you can't treat everything as just numbers. For our audience out there and the HR recruiters out there, I did get a degree in mechanical engineering. So oh, just, all right. <laughs> just throwing that out there. I did not know that. <laughs> Christopher, can you tell us any, we still got a little bit of time, any stories of that? that you could share for the companies that maybe you sold, the company you're currently working on, or you know, just something where our audience can have that, that takeaway. And I'm really curious, the companies that you sold in the past, did someone approach you to acquire them or did you just decide, you know what, I'm ready for my next thing? Turns out, now that you ask the question, they have all been different. With the first one, well, let's call it a digital agency. That's the modern term for it. That was, you know, basically approached by WPP. They decided that the future, this is, you got to take yourself back to that, that time frame. The future is digital in Asia. And Sir Martin Sorrell, you know, sought out the company and said, hey, let's, uh, let's combine this uh, into an agency. The, the statistical arbitrage company, that was a financial thing. And, and that was built well within kind of the framework of the eventual acquirer. The third company that I've sold, this is uh, the company was sold to Panasonic. It was actually a customer of ours. And the customer was introduced through Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, you may know A16Z has this very powerful network of portfolio companies and then also potential customers. And they put them together. And we were introduced to NASDAQ, to the CIA, to Kohl's, and, and so on. And Panasonic was one of those very large customers. And we, we did not know at the time that they were I guess they had aperture wide open, both for vendors, but also for potential uh, target companies. Uh, Panasonic was about to celebrate its 100th year anniversary, 2018. And the CTO, Miyabe-san, really knew that the future of Panasonic was going to be the usual interpretation is, is sort of moving from hardware to software. But I like to think of it as moving up the stack. Making batteries and so on, you know, having very powerful physics and chemistry, though very unique is also commoditized. And so moving up the stack and one of the key, what I call the sharp end of the stick was going to be AI. And item, oh, sorry, uh, Arimo at the time happened to be that team with that software with the people that was perfect for that. So I, I guess maybe what you draw from that is you don't build a company to sell. If it happens, it happens. But otherwise try to, right now, for example, I'm just having a blast. It's just, just I'm, I'm, I, I love solving this really hard problem and be able to proudly say, hey, we're one of the best teams in the world on this particular problem. 
And and that's going to be valuable to the world. And if it's valuable to some company that want to acquire us for some large sum, that may be okay as well. And hopefully when that day arrives, you, uh, you call out Sean. When I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, <laughs> I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Thank you for letting me that setup for that plug there. But Chris, if there's any way our audience wants to get more information on you, your company, what you're doing, what's the best way to go about doing it? Well, I would like to share two URLs, right? One is, of course, itomatic.com. This is like automatic, but AI, right? So that's easy to remember. The other is definitely check out k1st.world, k-first, knowledge first. So k1st.world is an awesome symposium. Uh, I want to put in a plug for Rodney Brooks, the father, as far as I'm concerned, the father of modern robotics. You know, he created iRobot, you know, the, the, if you have that vacuum cleaner. Jeanette Wing, currently... Uh, Executive VP at uh, at Columbia. She was the head of Microsoft Research. Panasonic, Hitachi. Lots of these folks are very experienced senior leaders that are successfully implementing or struggling at saying, you know, how do we implement AI? How do we move forward into this 21st century? You know, with our physical industrial systems. So definitely check that out. And I'll I'll try to find a discount code that that you can share. Fantastic. So for our audience out there listening to this, go to well, any, either the website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com or whatever platform you're listening to this on in the show notes, please look for a promo code. Please look for some, some links. Yeah, it should all be there. And with that, you know, Chris, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.